Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you for tuning in. You are listening to Fiscum All, your weekly consistency check on America's political and legal file systems. I'm your host, T. Greg Doucette, here in studio with Mike, the sound guy. It is Labor Day. I hope all of you are enjoying the extended weekend as we broadcast to you from the heart of downtown Durham, North Carolina. Uh, this is going to be probably the longest episode that has not had an interview in it. We have somehow managed in just a week to have a 10-page outline here in front of me. I can't make the pages rattle, you know, to highlight how thick this stack of stuff is. Um, but there's been a lot. I mean, starting from the day we released the, the episode last Monday, by the time we hit Wednesday, we had already had like 20-something stories in less than 48 hours. So there's a lot going on here. And these weren't just small stories. I mean, we're talking, there was a major thing going viral pretty much every day of the week. I mean, there was a story of the week pretty much every day. It was crazy. We went from a story in Georgia that we'll talk about that everyone's outraged about to another one in Detroit where they killed a teenager uh, to then the big one that was going on still around the weekend uh, was this one out of Utah. So we're going to cover all of this stuff. This has been a, a very packed, busy week when it comes to corruption and fuckery in our justice system. But before we get into all that, First, let me give you some updates on the podcast. So remember, next week I will be on vacation. I'm going to be down in Florida. It looks like right smack in the middle of Hurricane Irma. So whether or not I make it back remains to be seen. But we will still have an episode. We're going to have volume three of What the Fisk. That is WT Fisk, where I answer your questions. Mike and I are planning to record that on either Tuesday or Wednesday. So you still have time to uh, have some uh, questions sent in using the hashtag Fisk. That is hashtag F-S-C-K on Twitter. Also, I want to thank all of you for listening because we are now at about 1,300 subscribers, which is a lot. I mean, it's something where we were at about 1,000 when we had Harold Respass from the Respass Report podcast as our guest, and that was just over two months ago. So to have 30% growth in that two-month time span is pretty cool. I definitely i am uh, very happy with that. And I couldn't do that without the financial support of our patrons on Patreon. So this episode, our Samson sponsor is Melanie Green. And Melanie, thank you for your support. Uh, it means a lot and helps us have this uh, podcast running smoothly. And our Law 140 lover is Jennifer Cowart out of Florida. And her suggested topic for this week is the scope of the First Amendment, particularly as it applies to incitement and hate speech and some of the stuff that's been in the news recently. So we will cover that in the back third of the podcast. Uh, if you've not already done so, make sure to join the conversation online. Follow us on Twitter. We are at Fiskamall. That is at F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Greg, G-R-E-G underscore Doucette, D-O-U-C-E-T-T-E. And you can always leave comments on our website, Fiskamall.com, or join the Patreon community at Patreon.com slash Fisk. We're going to skip the political news this week. Uh, because I've just got page after page after page of justice news. Uh, suffice to say, the president is still an idiot. Uh, when it came time to give words of uh, encouragement to Houston as they were facing down the hurricane, his comments were, quote, good luck. After the hurricane, he then went out there once and focused almost entirely on the size of the crowd, saying, quote, what a crowd, what a turnout. Uh, it was all about him. And then he went back a second time. I guess he thought he was getting good poll numbers out of it and remarked, saying, quote, we saw a lot of happiness 
as people were busy rebuilding their devastated lives after losing everything. The dude is incompetent. And on top of that, North Korea has tested out their most recent hydrogen bomb. Uh, So we are now in a position where, thank you world, our collective uh, survival hinges on the good judgment of Kim Jong-un and Donald Trump. Fuck us. All right, so in the criminal justice world, we're going to start with court news. Uh, I typically segment these out from the state-by-state justice news because every now and then you have decisions by a circuit court, and it's tough for me to to squeeze that in among the state surveys. So we're going to do court stuff first. Out of the Eighth Circuit, a case that originated in Minneapolis, Minnesota, it's Hoyland versus McMenemy. That's a terrible name. I don't know how you pronounce that without getting tongue-tied. Essentially, this guy's wife was being pulled over. She's standing in her driveway with her hands up. She's got some form of handicap. I'm not clear from the opinion whether it's mental or physical. But essentially, he is terrified because he hears someone outside mention shooting. So he goes to the doorway, flicks on the porch light, opens the door, pulls out a camera, and is recording police while shouting to them that his wife has a handicap and they need to be aware of it. She's not armed, etc., etc. Well, the officers then tell him to go back inside. He refuses because he's recording the scene. So they go to his door and place him under arrest for uh, obstructing legal process is the Minnesota crime there. Uh, The court denied the officers their request for qualified immunity when the homeowner sued, uh, saying, quote, admittedly, Hoyland was shouting criticisms at the officers, but in a democracy, public officials have no general privilege to avoid publicity and embarrassment by preventing public scrutiny of their actions. Of course, there were no charges against the wife. The police officers fucked up royally. And now that the qualified immunity defense has been denied, Uh, Eventually, my suspicion is the city is going to pay out a handsome sum to have that case go away. So that's out of the Eighth Circuit. We will give you a link to that appeal. Uh, In Georgia, Sentinel Offender Services, which is a private probation company, is now going to have to pay $100,000 to people who it forced to take a drug test without a court order. Uh, Essentially, when you're on probation with these people, they make you pee in a cup, even though the law doesn't allow that. So they're going to pay out $100,000. This is after... Uh, There was a $1.5 million settlement just a few months ago because they were illegally sending people to jail for not paying their probation supervision fees on time. And that is in turn after a $425,000 settlement just last year for doing the exact same thing. So this company has now paid out over $2 million in less than a one-year time span, and they're still being used by the state of Georgia to provide probation services. Uh, In Oregon, there's a story in Willamette Week that's pretty detailed talking about the Multnomah County District Attorney Rod Underhill and how he has effectively removed uh, Circuit Court Judge Judith Matarazzo from all criminal cases. It's a so every state's judiciary is a little bit different. Um, and it's interesting to me as we do these stories every week to see the variances from one state to another. And I, the, the story, you'll have to read it, but essentially there's a way where the DA can file an affidavit and by default the judge is taken off of all criminal cases. That totally blows my mind. I don't know if we can do that in North Carolina. I don't think we can. I mean, it's just something that's so radical where the executive branch basically tells the judicial branch to fuck off. Um, but we'll give you that story. That is out of Willamette Week in Oregon. Down in Texas, the Court of Appeals for that state has thrown out the murder conviction of Jerome Demas. He was sentenced to life without parole in 2015 for a double murder in a Dallas nightclub. 
Turns out the Dallas County prosecutors uh, had evidence that tended to show that he didn't actually commit the crime, but they never gave that to the defense. And the trial court said they, quote, conducted a trial by ambush, surprising the defense with witness statements and other things that couldn't possibly have happened based on the other evidence, including video of the nightclub. Uh, that happened to be in their possession. So that is out of Texas. Demas is going to get a new trial. In Utah, Chief District Judge David Nuffer for the Federal District of Utah has ruled that you can now watch unicorn porn and drink at the same time. I'm just kidding. So that's a that's a ridiculous headline, I know, but this is a story out of Reason Magazine on a particular um, judicial decision. Turns out Utah's Department of Alcoholic Beverage Control uh, has a lot of rules and regulations on who's allowed to serve liquor, and they have a prohibition that says that you can't serve alcohol at any place um, where there's conduct considered contrary to the public health, peace, safety, welfare, and morals of the community, which includes showing a film, still picture, electronic reproduction, or other visual reproduction that depicts sex or simulated sex acts, a person displaying their genitals or buttocks, or a person being touched, caressed, or fondled on the breast, buttocks, anus, or genitals. Now, that seems to target pornography. That makes logical sense. But of course, that's not how the police handle it. Those of you who have seen the movie Deadpool, which which was a nationwide, uh, very widely attended mainstream movie, even though it's R-rated and has some pretty uh, grody segments in it. Well, in the final credits, you might recall there's a cartoon drawing of Deadpool caressing a unicorn's horn, and the unicorn's horn spits out rainbows. Well, Utah police decided that that was simulating sex and an orgasm, and because of that, you weren't allowed to have beer at this particular movie theater, so they started an administrative action uh, to penalize the movie theater for showing this mainstream movie. Uh, the court has said that violates the First Amendment because it's just totally fucking ridiculous. In Florida... There's a civil action involved against the uh, leadership of the Charlotte School of Law. You might recall from a couple podcasts ago, I mentioned Charlotte School of Law has shut down entirely. Uh, it's one of the seven law schools here in North Carolina. And in this particular case, there is a key TAM action, which essentially what this is, it's a federal whistleblower case where if someone brings evidence of public corruption to the feds, they can take a look at it and decide if they want to get involved. If they decide they don't, you get to file suit on the government's behalf and you and your attorneys get to take a portion of whatever amount gets awarded as a judgment. Well, this particular lawsuit turns out the leadership of Charlotte School of Law was delaying the payment of student loan money to students. And part of the reason why they did that is that they were using that money to try to negotiate, and I am not making this up, this is from the lawsuit, we will give you the link, a contract for a gold mine with the government of Haiti. They were giving money to Haiti politicians trying to get rights to mine gold from a particular gold mine in the country. What the flying fuck? is a law school doing trying to get a gold mining contract? I don't know. Uh, but there's a very lengthy lawsuit. It is insane. It is bizarre. Uh, it is every stereotype that those of us in the state had about Charlotte School of Law. Uh, turns out it's all true. It's crazy. Uh, so in general news, we have a couple research studies relating to the federal 1033 program, which is the one that uh, Donald Trump, the Papaya POTUS, 
uh, Attorney General Jefferson Beauregard Sessions, they've brought this back where local police departments can get military-grade equipment from the feds when the feds are no longer using it. And the question is whether or not these programs incentivize police violence, brutality, killings, that sort of thing. Uh, We've got a handful of studies out on that. One of them that's been cited by Republicans and the leadership and the people that support the program uh, says that there's a positive result from giving the police all of this equipment. There's a reduction in officer deaths, a reduction in civilian complaints, et cetera, et cetera. Now, here's the thing. I actually read through this one in its entirety. I'm not a scientist, so I can't really go into the scientific validity about it. But just looking at the results, assuming the results are totally accurate, What they have said is that a 1% increase in the amount of stuff that the federal government gives to the states leads to a 0.007% reduction in officer fatalities. Now, that seems statistically significant, of course, but if you actually consider how few officers die nationwide, there's only 160-ish in any given year, And nearly two-thirds of those are deaths caused by bad health, like having a heart attack while you happen to be on the job, or bad behavior, like reckless driving. Um, How you get a 0.007% reduction when you're only affecting 60-ish officers, uh, that's basically you get, for every 1% of military stuff, you get half an officer who doesn't die in any given year uh, at best. That is a best-case scenario. Um, But that's apparently what's being touted as this great thing. No reference to the fact that all this military equipment takes money to upkeep, takes time to learn how to use, incentivizes reckless conduct elsewhere. Don't touch any of that. Even in a best case scenario, uh, 1% increase in stuff leads to a fractional officer in any given year not losing his life. Uh, And then Cato has linked to a, not really a counter study per se, but one doing the exact same things. And what that story has found is that as you increase the amount of stuff that the uh, local governments get, it's what you've come to expect from listening to this podcast for several months. Police kill more people. They abuse more people. And in particular, this one's taken a look at puppy side. They found that police kill more dogs as well. So you think you're getting all of this body armor and these weaponry and you'd think you'd be a little bit safer in the job. You'd be less inclined to take a life. Uh, That's not the case. Turns out the more that police get fancy toys, the more likely they are to kill you and your pets. So we'll give you links to both of those studies in the show notes. Uh, One is from the American Journal, or the American Economic Journal. Uh, The other one is Research and Politics. In Wired, there is an article on a study from the Vera Institute of Justice regarding video visitation. Uh, So this is something where more jails across the country are getting rid of in-person visitation. You're no longer allowed to visit inmates in person in a lot of places. And they're replacing this essentially with Skype, except shittier. So the video quality is worse, and they charge $13 for every 30 minutes, which is insane for something that is functionally uh, free. You got to pay a little bit of money for the upkeep and the bandwidth, but it's a, a tiny, tiny, tiny cost compared to what you're dealing with, um, especially when it's spread across however many inmates. But anyhow, so the Very Institute has done a comprehensive stu- uh, study in several states, and what they have found is that in most states, video visitation is being used as an excuse to get rid of in-person visitation, which is a terrible fucking idea. 
Uh, but in cases where video visitation is added as a complement, where you have it in addition to in-person visitation, uh, being able to Skype your family as an inmate encourages people to actually come visit you as well. There's a positive increase in in-person visits uh, from being able to have this. It, let me I, When I say Skype, I'm using Skype as a verb. It is not Skype. There's a separate program run by a private company, and the separate program sucks ass, as does the private company. But they make a shitload of money off of it, and they give a poor of that money to the jail as a kickback as an incentive to keep using the program. Anyhow, so we'll give you the story and the, uh, the study that it's referring to in the show notes. It's a very detailed and it's kind of, you know, it's one of those things where it's a double-edged sword. There's a lot of fuckery in it, but there's also a few positives as well. And the hope is we can focus on the positives, but realistically knowing politicians as they are, we're just going to get more fuckery. Uh, TED, T-E-D, the people that do the TED Talks, they've released a TED Talk from, it looks like last year, but it just came out this week, from Harvard Law Professor Ronald Sullivan, where he talks for about 12 minutes about his work freeing people who are wrongly convicted. And it's a... It's one of the things that reminds me why I got into criminal defense work, because he starts off, for example, with a guy who was arrested for a crime, spent years in jail, ended up spending, I think, decades in jail by the time it was all said and done, uh, for something that he couldn't have committed. And they found that out because when he was arrested, you know, one of the things they do is the police inventory all of your belongings. They take all your stuff out of your pockets. They put it in an evidence bag if they need it. Well, there was a receipt from Disneyland in Florida, uh, where this guy was. He's from like Ohio or Indiana or some shit. The day he supposedly committed this crime, there's a receipt in his pocket proving that he was in Florida hours away, which is what he had said from the moment that he at first got arrested. So that case eventually got thrown out. And he talks about three or four more of these, but it's just really basic oversights that makes readily clear that these people haven't committed the crimes, but police get this idea that they're the ones that are guilty, so they go out of their way uh, to prove a case, and the DAs get blinders on and go along with it. And in the process, you end up you end up screwing multiple people at once. So not only do you screw the people who are wrongfully convicted, but you screw the victims, because you've now failed to find the person who actually committed the crime. They're still running loose. They're theoretically still victimizing other people. Uh, so I'm going to give you the link to this TED Talk. Again, it's only about 12 minutes. It's really good, but you should definitely check it out. Uh, in the state-by-state state news, we'll start off. So we've been doing this alphabetically for a while. I've been wanting to switch it up and use other things like, you know, year they join the union or their size or whatever else. But folks have said to stick with alphabetical because apparently people are listening to the podcast and scrolling to their particular spot in the timeline where they think their state will be. Uh, so we're going to keep it alphabetical for now. I can't guarantee that's going to stay the same. Same, but we'll stick with alphabetical. Uh, in Arizona, in Maricopa County, Andrew Case, who was the clerk for the judge that found Sheriff Joe Arpaio in criminal contempt, uh, tweeted out his thoughts in defense of the judge and referring to the criticisms that both Arpaio and Trump have had about him, uh, calling him a liberal and a leftist and whatever else. And one of the, there's a, it's a long thread, it's worth reading. He includes uh, screenshots of some of the pleadings in the case, but the takeaway is one of the last tweets. He says, quote, So when you hear Arpaio and Trump on the judge, remember, the judge is a classic Republican judge and a deeply honorable man. So we'll give you that link for you to read. It's definitely interesting reading. Uh, over in Tucson, 
George Ibera is a United States citizen. He's served in the Marine Corps uh, during the Gulf War, was honorably discharged, had several awards for his uh, time there. Even a federal judge has ruled that he's a citizen. Why is the judge ruling that he's a citizen? Well, ICE is working to have him deported anyway, claiming that he is not, in fact, a citizen. So this is all going on. We'll give you this story. It's... um, it, it's wild to me to think that our government can deport citizens, documented citizens, with judges' orders saying they're citizens, uh, and still continue, despite court orders, to try and deport these people. So that is in Tucson, Arizona. In California, this is the first week, I think, that California has not had anything bad that I've found. Uh, so out of Bakersfield, y'all might remember, we've talked twice now about Tatiana Hargrove, who is the 19-year-old girl uh, who police somehow managed to mistake for a grown, bald black man, uh, beat her, had the dog chew on her a little bit. Uh, she has finally filed a civil rights lawsuit against the police department for excessive force. Uh, our first time we talked about her, she had been charged with resisting arrest. The second time we talked about her, all of those charges have been dismissed. She has now filed a lawsuit, and California taxpayers are rightfully going to be paying a lot of money to her. It would be nice if the police department had to pay that, so that way you could have a little bit of uh, market incentive to not fuck up like this again. But that's all I've got for California, believe it or not. Uh, out of Colorado, in Sheridan, y'all might recall a viral Facebook post from 26-year-old Joshua Witt who claimed that because his haircut vaguely resembled a neo-Nazi, a random black guy in his mid-20s stabbed him. Well, when that post went viral, several folks in the media contacted the police. Uh, It turns out Witt had bought a knife at a sporting goods store, was playing with it in his car, and accidentally stabbed himself, and then filed a false police report blaming it on a random black guy. So that's it for Colorado. In Florida, out of Jacksonville, school principal Kimberly Stidham has been suspended uh, after several Facebook posts where she says things like, quote, take all of the rope in Texas, find a tall oak tree, round up all of them bad boys, referring to Antifa in this case, uh, hang them high in the street for all the people to see that. Uh, So she's got that one. She's got several others where she's sharing these fake black-on-black crime statistics that you saw the president retweet earlier in the year and people like to pass around. Uh, Has several memes talking about the Black Lives Matter movement. Essentially, this woman's a racist, an avowed racist, puts it all on her Facebook page for everyone to see. I was shocked that someone actually managed to point this out. So she has since been suspended and, of course, offered the complete stereotype excuse of this is not who I am. I'm thankful that you've pointed out this could have been misinterpreted. It, there's no real misinterpretation there. I mean, it's that's the type of shit you say when you've got some deep-seated hostility towards people of color. Uh, speaking of deep-seated hostility towards people of color, Georgia, holy shit. So when I talk about there was a story of the week every day, uh, there were two separate stories out of Georgia that we thought were going to be the big story of the week before other stories happened to uh, get involved. Uh, So out of Cobb County, Georgia, there are two separate things here. Uh, In July of 2016, so over a year ago now, Police Lieutenant Greg Abbott pulled over a guy suspected for driving uh, under the influence. That guy was arrested. There was a woman passenger that was waiting for someone to pick her up because she too was uh, too drunk to drive. So as the officer comes to the passenger side window... He is essentially trying to make small talk, seeing if she's going to call somebody. And she tells him that she's afraid to reach for her cell phone. And she says, quote, I've just seen too many videos of cops. Abbott then cuts her off and he says, quote, but you're not black, 
Remember, we only shoot black people. Yeah, we only kill black people. All the videos you've seen, have you seen the black people get killed? Um, and of course, all of this is on dash cam because first rule of Fisk, police will continue to do dumb shit even when they are being recorded. So the interesting thing here is that this video just got released in the past week and Abbott has been suspended this week for conduct that happened a year ago. The police didn't think it was a problem until it happened to go viral. So marinate on that for a little bit because the fact is the police cannot be trusted to regulate themselves. It just can't be done. Time after time after time, we have found the government sweeping under the rug things that happen, and they don't do anything about it until it happens to get released into the public domain. So that is in Cobb County. Uh, also in Cobb County, the grand jury has cleared police officer James Caleb Elliott uh, after he pulled over a group of teenagers in a stolen car, uh, one of them ran away. Elliot chased him on foot, fired eight shots at him as he was fleeing, uh, ended up hitting the kid in the thigh. The grand jury has decided not to indict him for any crime at all, even though while you're chasing someone that you can capture later, while you're shooting at them and they run away, all remains to be seen. But that's also in Cobb County. So if, basically, if you happen to be black in Cobb County, Georgia, uh, you might want to just kind of be extra cautious. Uh, in Atlanta, State Representative Jason Spencer, who apparently represents part of the southern parts of Georgia, uh, essentially told former Representative LaDawn Jones, a black woman, uh, that she needed to watch her tongue. Uh, there was a Facebook interaction back and forth about whether or not some of the Confederate statues in Georgia needed to be taken down. And Spencer says, quote, continue your quixotic journey into South Georgia and it will not be pleasant. That's the truth, not a warning. Those folks won't put up with it like they do in Atlanta. I can guarantee you won't be met with torches, but something a lot more definitive. They will go missing in the Okefenokee. So, of course, Jones took that as a threat of violence because what the fuck else are you referring to? Something more definitive. What does that even mean? But, of course, as a reminder of why I hate everybody. So the media initially reported these comments as implying that Jones was going to be lynched. That's what Spencer was suggesting. And that's normally a logical conclusion because lynching is one of the de facto ways that whites took care of black people whenever they had a disagreement back in the day. And, of course, conservatives went, oh, this is biased media. They've, he didn't say lynching. He said disappearing in the swamp. Well, Jesus Christ, guys, whether you die from hanging from a tree or die in a swamp, the fact the media fucked up the method of execution doesn't change the fact you've got a state representative in Georgia talking about killing people for expressing their concerns over participation trophies to traitors. This really is the epitome of completely missing the entire fucking forest for the trees. So that is out of Georgia. In Idaho, Idaho has two separate stories this week. So out of Boise, uh, 34 state legislators, including five retired legislators, so 39 people in all, have signed a letter to Attorney General Beauregard asking him to stop the prosecutions against the Bundy clan for that standoff with the Bureau of Land Management where a bunch of white people showed up with AR-15s and other weaponry so that the Bundys could continue allowing their cattle to graze on public land like the welfare kings and queens that they are. So now keep this in mind. These are legislators asking the federal government to stop prosecuting criminals, but 
there you're going to find later on that you have people complaining at length about legislators who decide that we should not prosecute people for taking down Confederate monuments. We're going to get to that story here in North Carolina in a bit, uh, but that's out of Boise. In Ada County, Idaho, a jury has awarded a $1.5 million verdict to Idaho State Police Investigator Brandon Eller. Eller was one of their uh, people looking into a 2011 crash in Payette County where a sheriff's deputy struck and killed a civilian. And there's video from the dash cam and everything else. Eller looks into this, and he concludes that the deputy was at fault. Well, police do what police do. He ensured that he never got another promotion again. He eventually left the force. Uh, and he ended up filing suit claiming that he was retaliated against for trying to hold the police accountable. A jury in Ada County has agreed, and now taxpayers in Idaho will be forking over $1.5 million for the police fuckery there. In Illinois, an interesting separation of powers discussion is going to come up. So the Illinois Department of Justice has filed a lawsuit asking to step into the shoes of the U.S. Department of Justice when it comes to coming up with a consent decree governing the Chicago Police Department. And I, I don't really know how this is all going to pan out because this is just this was weird to me. I don't know why the Illinois legislature can't impose conditions on this Chicago PD itself. I'm not familiar with their state constitution, uh, but you might recall that the federal government has the power to prosecute uh, police departments for violating people's civil rights and for engaging in this pattern and practice of doing it systematically. Uh, the Obama administration negotiated, I think, like six of them. It wasn't that many, uh, but of course, our beloved Papaya Potus, Coral Castro, Donald Trump himself, uh, talked about how this is hamstringing police departments and stopping them from being able to conduct their business. Attorney General Beauregard has pledged that the DOJ will not do any more of these and will refuse to enforce the ones that already exist. So the one was in the process of being negotiated for the Chicago Police Department because there's a very lengthy study uh, showing that Chicago PD violates people's rights on a daily basis. And the Department of Justice has now said, eh, never mind. It's cool. Chicago's got, you know, a lot of killings, so we're just going to let the police violate the Constitution. That's the way to solve this particular problem. So the Illinois Department of Justice wants to step in. They've filed suit and asking a federal judge to give them permission to do so. On its face, it just it seems weird to me. I don't see how that would work, uh, particularly when you can just have the Illinois legislature change the rules. Uh, but we'll see what how that shakes out. In Maryland, again confirming that The Wire was in fact a documentary, not a drama. Uh, Baltimore Police Department Sergeant Thomas Allers, who's been an officer since 1996, has been arrested on federal racketeering charges. Uh, from the Baltimore Sun story, quote, federal prosecutors allege that Allers, a former leader of a unit, stole money from victims, some of whom had not committed crimes, swore out false affidavits, and submitted false official incident reports. Uh, he did so while overseeing and covering for other officers committing similar crimes. Uh, so they are now facing federal indictment for that. Out of Greenbelt, a federal jury has ordered two police officers to pay $500,000 to Ronnie Lyles, uh, who is a truck driver who was tased in the back. Uh, essentially, the police admitted that uh, Lyles had never done anything wrong. The truck was pulled over. 
he was asked to step out of the vehicle uh, because he had the temerity to ask the officer why he was being stopped. Eventually, the officer said that he wasn't wearing a seatbelt, which turns out there's no way you could actually uh, see that he wasn't wearing the seatbelt from the officer's vantage point. That's neither here nor there. Officer called for backup, asked for Lyles to step out of the car. Uh, and as soon as he gets out of the car, turns around and puts his hands on the vehicle, um, police officer Job or Job, I don't know, Blanco uh, and Brian Slattery uh, tase the guy in the back. So Lyles collapses to the ground, hits his head, ends up with a concussion, gets arrested and jailed uh, for resisting arrest, loses his job in the process. Those charges are eventually dismissed. So he's never actually convicted of a crime. Um, and these two officers, Blanco and Slattery, are still serving on the police force. So Maryland taxpayers will still be paying another half million dollars for the police brutality in that case. Out of Michigan, Detroit had two separate what we thought were going to be stories of the week, each one overshadowed by another one. Uh, so out of Detroit, a camera phone video leaked out showing DeMarco Kraft and Mikhail Jackson at a gas station to buy cigarettes when they're spotted by Detroit police officers Richard Billingsley and Hakeem Patterson. And you see the officers exchanging words with the guys. Apparently, Jackson didn't want to buy anything with the police officers breathing down his neck, standing over his shoulder. Well, there ends up being an altercation. And I'm going to give you the police report first. So according to Billingsley's report, uh, Jackson was aggressive and came towards him with clenched fists. Uh, he then had just enough time to spray Jackson with a two to three second burst of pepper spray and was trying to fight Jackson off as he was violently attempting to come after Billingsley. Patterson's report says he was watching Kraft, who was the guy recording everything on his mobile phone, when he heard his partner shout out that Jackson is trying to hit him. So those are the two reports. Seems like Jackson is a bad dude. And you normally you would go to like the security camera footage to see who's right. Well, it turns out the police confiscated the security camera footage and refused to release it to the public. Well, Kraft had his video on his mobile phone. That got released. Turns out it was all bullshit. So you see Jackson standing at the cash register with his back to the officer. The office, his hands are to side, nothing in his hands, completely peaceful. The officer pulls out his pepper spray and sprays the back of Jackson's head, then grabs Jackson around the neck and flings him into one of the uh, end caps on, y'all know how in gas stations they've got rows of food. Uh, this is one of the end pieces. So Jackson gets thrown into that. And the other officer, Patterson, is telling Kraft, who's recording everything, that he needs to back up, get out of the gas station, can't record it anymore, or he's going to be arrested, even though it's a complete and total violation of the First Amendment. Turns out these officers are two pieces of shit, and but for camera phones, uh, no one would ever know about it. So that was in Detroit. We thought that was going to be the story of the week. Well, then, also in Detroit... 15-year-old DeMond Grimes is now dead. Uh, police attempted to pull him over because they claim he was recklessly driving an ATV. Uh, Grimes refused to stop. I mean, shit, if I was being pulled over by cops in Detroit, I'd probably refuse to stop too. Uh, well, they chased him, and the report from the police is that Grimes attempted to exit the street and in the process crashed into a truck, was flown, uh, thrown from the vehicle, and died on the scene. And buried in the story, and it, it's, it's so deftly buried in the story, you don't really realize it as you're reading it, says, quote, uh, Shaw, who's one of the police spokespeople, says, after an investigation, 
They, the police, found the trooper deployed his taser, striking the 15-year-old before the crash. Well, no fucking shit he crashed if you've tased him. Have any of y'all been tased before? I have. It is the worst pain I've ever experienced in my life. That's number one. It's phenomenally painful, which is the point. But then in addition to that, it's an electric current, so it prevents your body from being able to move. You can't do anything. You collapse to the ground. If you're driving a vehicle and an officer tases you, you're not going to be able to control that vehicle anymore. And guess what? Because of momentum, the vehicle is going to continue going in the direction that it was going before you got tased. So not only did they chase a 15-year-old kid for a traffic citation, which is stupid, they pulled a taser out for that, which is stupid. They shot him through the door of their patrol cars. They're chasing him, which is stupid. And in the process, the kid crashed and died. So that is your Detroit Police Department. Those are the stories out of Michigan. In Minnesota, out of Minneapolis, former police chief Janae Hartall is going to get $183,000 in severance pay and 12 months of health benefits in exchange for her resignation after the death of Justine Damon. Plus, the mayor is fighting for a mutual non-disparagement clause where the city won't say anything bad about her and she won't say anything bad about the city. Uh, it's a sweetheart deal. It's totally fucking ridiculous. Uh, if any of you follow Tony Webster, he is at Webster on Twitter. He's got the details and has uh, some more information there. Out of St. Paul, this is another story we thought was going to be a story of the week. Uh, undercover police officer Benny Williams and his partner apparently mistake 36-year-old Andrew Casey for a missing person. Casey asks the officers for proof that they are, in fact, police, and Benny Williams replies, my badge number is 911, shoves his badge into the camera that Casey is using to record the interaction, which in turn pushes the camera into Casey's face and nearly pushes him down. As Williams goes, I work for St. Paul, bitch, I'm going to slap you down. Uh, Williams then, days later, made a coerced apology video uh, after Casey had posted his video on Facebook. Uh, Williams says, quote, I'm very passionate about what I do, and today I just had a human moment where I just said some things that just were not professional. I want to apologize to this individual. It doesn't represent who I am or my organization, the St. Paul Police Department. This, it reminds me of those hostage videos where it's all very scripted and, you know, I want to apologize to this individual. Do you not know the guy's name? Did you not try to apologize to him individually? Or did you just decide that you were going to respond on social media because he happened to post a Facebook video of you acting like a total fucking buffoon? So that's out of Minnesota. In New York, there's a story out of the Bronx where they have a bail expediting program, I guess, which helps people that are too poor to bail out as they're awaiting trial. That program is expanding, so I'll give you the story with the full details on that. In my home state of North Carolina, we have two stories this week. So here in Durham, y'all might recall from the earlier podcast, hashtag Defend Durham was the title. We talked about the protesters who took down the Confederate monument and then how the sheriff's department forewarned everyone about a Klan rally that didn't happen and then tried to pretend that they didn't actually warn anybody about it. Go back to listen to that podcast if you haven't yet. Well, Virginia Bridges, who's a reporter with the Herald Sun, has been doing some good work kind of keeping track of things that have taken place with this particular incident. And the sheriff 
sent a letter to all of the elected officials, the mayor, the city council, the county commission, essentially saying he wants more regulations on speech so that if you're going to have any kind of protest, make sure you get permission from the government first. That's ridiculous on its own, violates the First Amendment in many respects, uh, except for content neutral time, place, manner restrictions, which we're going to talk about in the Law 140 section. But then on top of that, uh, his I don't know if he's the second in command, but he's Major Paul Martin. One of the things that he talked about uh, is that he claims that county commissioners, elected officials from the legislative branch, are setting a dangerous precedent by questioning the felony charges that the sheriff's department chose to file, saying, quote, this is absolute anarchy that totally undermines the constitution of this country. Now, keep in mind, these are elected officials from the legislative branch, which, if you recall from basic separation of powers discussions in grade school civics classes, are tasked with exercising oversight over the executive branch, in this case, the sheriff's office. But then on top of that, newsflash for Major Martin, and this applies to the sheriff as well, because there's no way Major Martin would make these kinds of ridiculous outlandish comments without the sheriff's authorization, whether it's expressed or implied. Uh, guys, guess what? It's not your fucking job to decide who gets charged with felonies. You might recall we have a grand jury process. It's the grand jury's job to make that decision after the prosecutor who prosecutes presents that to the grand jury for an indictment. So this notion that county commissioners are setting a dangerous precedent by questioning the fact that your people fucked up by overcharging a case you can't possibly hope to prove, and you can't prove it because of your sheriff's own comments confirming that the situation was not what the elements of the crime require, uh, you guys are fucking idiots. All right. I really like the sheriff's office. I work with a lot of these guys on a regular basis. But this particular scenario, I realize that it's election season coming up. Andrews wants to get reelected. But this just keeps going down fucking hill with more insane, completely ahistorical, anti-constitutional commentary from our law enforcement here in Durham, North Carolina. It's totally nuts. Um, out of Charlotte, Mecklenburg County, uh, there's a woman running for mayor, Kimberly Page Barnett who is a Republican candidate for mayor of Charlotte, and one of her ways of getting people to vote for her is her introductory text on Facebook, which said, quote, vote for me, Republican and smart, white, traditional. So, of course, the fact that she advertised herself as white caused a public uproar, and for most people, that was the end of the story. That was not the end of the story for me, because guess what? It turns out that Miss Barnett had been a magistrate for 18 years. Now, a magistrate in North Carolina, they are the judge that hears things like uh, pleas for traffic tickets and small claims cases, so civil disputes where you're fighting over $10,000 or less. But they are also the people that when police come to them and say, hey, I have probable cause for an arrest warrant or for a search warrant, the magistrate is the person that verifies whether or not they actually do have probable cause. And if you get arrested, the magistrate is the one that sets your initial bail amount before you can ever get seen by a judge. So you might want to ask yourselves, how neutral is this neutral magistrate advertising herself as white on Facebook? How neutral was she? towards people of color that came into her courtroom during her 18 years of service. When people talk about systemic racism, this is the type of stuff they're talking about. You have closet Klansmen in positions of power wielding that power over other people in the community. Out of Ohio, we got a pair of stories. In Euclid, 
We've talked before about Officer Michael Amiot. You might recall he was the guy who beat Richard Hubbard III, initially said that Hubbard was resisting. Video came out the following week showing that Hubbard never had a chance to resist. The officer just started beating him as soon as he got out of the car. Uh, well, it turns out this guy's got a long disciplinary record. Uh, he was, quote, uh, quote, he was cited for pistol whipping a driver with a handgun, mishandling evidence, losing his temper in front of his commanding officer, and being involved in two separate police crashes. So he's got four different reprimands, and yet he is still on the force, still collecting a paycheck, still abusing citizens of Euclid, Ohio. Out of Cleveland, the Cleveland Police Union has decided that they will not participate in the uh, national anthem for the Browns football game where they hold the flag because they are upset that players kneeled during the anthem last week. So to rephrase that slightly, the police union is not participating in the time-honored traditions relating to the national anthem as a form of protest. Irony is truly dead. Out of Oklahoma, you might recall we talked about the Colbert police chief, Bart Alsbrook, who was hired out there. Turns out he owned a white supremacist record label as well as some websites. And of course, when that came out and he resigned, he insisted that this was all the byproduct of identity theft. Someone stole his identity and created this white nationalist record label in his name. Came out this week that, in fact, there was a skinhead documentary of several white nationalists some years ago. And who is on it but former Colbert police chief Bart Alsbrook. So his cover story was a load of bullshit. And on top of that, turns out the police department couldn't have done that much vetting because all this stuff is now widely publicly available on Google and they never bothered to check. Out of Oregon, the Portland Tribune has a story about how the Portland Police Union is starting a group called the United Coalition of Public Safety, or UCOPS, to push back on negative media coverage. Quote, the UCOPS mission is to publicly promote, through education and outreach, the exceptional work of law enforcement officers in our community. They're going to go ahead and start having publicity campaigns. Now, look, I don't have a problem with this. Government does propaganda all the time. I'm used to it. But, guys, here's the thing. People don't trust you, not because of the media. It's because of what they see with their own eyes on cell phone video that gets posted every day. If you want to improve the negative media coverage, stop tolerating your fellow police officers when they're abusing the rights of citizens. Start acting like police. Start protecting and serving your communities. And when you have people on the force alongside you who don't do that, hold them accountable. I hate using the lipstick on a pig reference here because of the fact people call cops pigs. I don't. But this really is a situation where you can put lipstick on a pig and it's still a pig. If you want to have change, if you want to have your profession held in greater esteem, make it so that you don't have dash cam, body cam, cell phone cam video coming out every day showing rampant police brutality all over the country. So that's out of Oregon. In Pennsylvania... John Sheeran, who's a 63-year-old teacher, attended a protest outside of a statue of Frank Rizzo. Uh, Rizzo, if y'all don't know him, he's the former mayor of Philadelphia, and he's got several videos on YouTube where he's threatening violence against reporters. He's a former police officer and general asshole who died some decades ago. Of course, that's the type of people they build monuments to, so he's got a monument in Philadelphia. Well, there's a protest that took place outside the statue because people are calling for it to be taken down. And someone has a Periscope live feed where you see the police have fencing set up to protect the statue. And when protesters basically piss them off, the police as a group would push the fence back into these people. And you notice that they push the fence into Sheeran, which sets Sheeran off. He ends up going on an extended tirade against the police. 
uh, essentially saying, why the fuck did you have to do that? You didn't have to push the gate into me. Kiss that badge and uniform goodbye. You're fucking done, bitch. You're fucking done, you gutless bitch. Take that gun and badge. I fucking dare you. I'll give you my fucking address, you punk-ass bitch. I'd take his fucking head off if he didn't have that badge and gun. You can look me up. This 63-year-old man will beat your fucking ass. This is as there are several people in front of him trying to push him back away from the police barricade. Well, of course, the police showed up and charged him with making terroristic threats. And I think what you're going to find is that case is eventually going to get dismissed for the very reason that we're going to talk about in our Law 140 segment this podcast. Those aren't terroristic threats. It's something where it's free speech. And we'll, we'll cover that in a minute. So that's out of Philadelphia. Also out of Philadelphia... The Fraternal Order of Police President John McNesby had a Back the Blue rally in response to a protest the week before regarding the extrajudicial summary execution of David Jones, who's another black man who was shot in the back by police. This seems to be a frequent occurrence, shooting people in the back. Um, McNesby said, quote, When you go to work each day, you shouldn't have to worry that a pack of rabid animals will suddenly show up at your home and openly threaten your family, referring to the activists. Uh, these are not activists. They are racist hate groups determined to instigate violence. Now, bear in mind, McNesby is the same guy that last September uh, decided to defend Hans Lichterman, uh, who was a cop that had a tattoo of the uh, Nazi Party insignia on him that got on social media. Uh, and for that guy, McNesby said, I've seen the tattoo. It's an eagle, not a big deal. So when it comes to black people, if they protest, they're rabid animals, but if you're a cop Nazi with a Nazi tattoo on top of it, it's not a big deal. Welcome to Philadelphia. Uh, in Cumberland County, the district attorney's office had a law clerk, Evan McLaren, who you, you might recognize that name. He's the executive director of Richard Spencer's National Policy Institute. Richard Spencer, of course, being the avowed Nazi that's on the media all the time. Uh, but he got an internship anyway as a law clerk while McLaren was at the Dickinson School of Law in Carlisle. So not only do you have Nazis on the police force in Pennsylvania, you also have Nazis in the DA's office. Out of South Carolina in Richland County, uh, there's a story about the Richland County Police Department's participation in the 1033 program, getting that surplus military equipment. Uh, they had insisted, among other things, on getting an armored personnel carrier as well as Army-grade cargo planes. Turns out those things cost a fuckload of money and time to both maintain and learn to use. And as part of it, Richland County was actually suspended from the program for a time. So I'll give you that story. It highlights how totally fucking stupid it is that we give military-grade equipment to domestic police. It's so dumb. Uh, out of Texas... San Antonio police have cleared Officer Gary Tooley. You might recall we talked about him back in our May 29th podcast where he was called to a quinceanera to deal with a fight between two men. A 14-year-old girl approached and he punched her square in the face because he could. Uh, San Antonio police said this, uh, that's totally fine. Punching little girls is completely within the scope of the job. Out of Utah. So this is the story of the week. Uh, this is the one that everyone has been talking about that highlights how totally lawless police have gotten in certain parts of the country. And I want to make sure I get this all right because there's a lots of pieces of fuckery to it. Like there's a lot of fuckery, but there's a lot of intricate pieces of fuckery to highlight how fucked the fuckery is. So the Salt Lake City Police Department attempted to pull a guy over, 26-year-old Marco Torres. Torres didn't want to be pulled over, so he fled, and police engaged in a high-speed chase because 
Rule three of Fisk, there are no new stories, only new names and jurisdictions. That's what police do. They will chase motherfuckers for any type of crime, no matter the regard to anyone else. You might recall we've had civilians killed in Charlotte because they got ran over by a cop in a chase. You had 15-year-old girls killed in Monroe, North Carolina, because the officer chased them and then flipped their van. It's just something where high-speed chases almost never end well, but police continue to fucking do it anyway. So they chased Torres. Torres crashed his car into a tractor trailer. Torres died at the scene, and the victim is a William Gray. So William Gray, of course, is in a flaming tractor trailer. They get him extracted from the vehicle, airlift him to the University of Utah burn unit, and we're not going to talk too much detail about Gray yet, but I want you to remember his name because it's going to matter in a minute. So police detective Jeff Payne, who is with the Salt Lake City Police Department, he's a phlebotomist. He's the guy they send out to take blood samples. He shows up to the hospital wanting a blood sample from Gray, who remembers the victim in this case, saying he, quote, wants to protect him. What the fuck he's protecting him from, no one knows. Uh, But turns out that Alex Wubbles, who is the chief nurse, says, hey guys, you can't do that because Gray's still unconscious, and if you don't have a warrant and you don't have consent, I can't let you take his blood. That's a violation of hospital policy. It's a violation of the Constitution. Well, of course, Jeff Payne doesn't like this, so he insists that she allow him to do it, gets his uh, lieutenant on the line, James Tracy, says that they're going to go ahead and take his blood or she's going to be arrested. So she gets, Wubbles, the nurse, gets her supervisor on the phone. And by her mind, this is all on body cam. You're seeing all of this. And the supervisor goes, if you arrest her, you'd be making a big mistake. Well, Payne says, fuck it, decides to arrest her anyway, forces her out of the hospital all on camera, puts her in handcuffs, throws her in a patrol car for 20 minutes as she's sitting here trying to figure out what's going on. You then see Lieutenant Tracy come out, basically talking down to her, you know, saying, oh, if you just let us draw us blood, you wouldn't have this problem. Well, it turns out she wasn't actually arrested for anything. Well, she was arrested, but she wasn't actually charged with anything because she had done nothing wrong. Turns out warrantless blood draws violate the Fourth Amendment to the United States Constitution. The Supreme Court had a case just last year, Birchfield versus North Dakota, where they talk about this. And there's no way that a police phlebotomist out of Salt Lake City didn't know that. Well, then, as a plot twist, turns out William Gray, the driver of the tractor trailer who was the victim of this high-speed chase, he's actually an off-duty police officer from Rigby, Idaho. So the Rigby Police Department issued a statement thanking the nurse because she essentially protected this guy from being abused by police in a different jurisdiction. The officer, Jeff Payne, is actually on video saying they don't have probable cause to get a warrant, but they basically threatened to arrest a nurse anyway because they wanted blood. Why did they want the blood? Because they were hoping Gray was drunk or had some kind of other impairment so they could protect themselves for the fact they were chasing a guy when they shouldn't have and someone died because of it. They were trying to cover their own ass. They were willing to violate the constitutional rights of a random person to do it, and it just so happened the person whose rights they were going to violate happened to be a police officer. So that is out of Utah. All of this is on body camera video. It's a difficult video to watch, but you should because, again, it highlights the total lawlessness of the people who are tasked with enforcing our laws. 
out of Virginia in Charlottesville. New text messages have leaked from the chat app Discord uh, talking about the Nazi event they had where Heather Heyer was killed. Turns out all of this had been planned in advance. They were talking about using cars to run protesters over. And among the texts, they were actually collaborating with Charlottesville police. So you might remember from uh, last podcast when the ACLU released a video where the guy actually pulled out a gun and shot at a counter protester and then walked past a whole bunch of police who did nothing. This was all planned. The Nazis had been collaborating with the police to make sure they could do whatever they want and get away with it. So I'll give you that link that uh, ProPublica has the text messages. In Washington, out of King County, we have another one that was supposed to be a story of the week until other stories of the week happened to overshadow it. An unnamed deputy with the King County Sheriff's Office is now on administrative leave after a helmet-mounted GoPro video was put on YouTube showing him walking up to a random motorcyclist with his gun drawn and pointing at him. The officer walks up and says, how are you doing? At which point the motorcyclist sees the gun and freaks out and says, what are you doing to me? The officer goes, what do you mean, what am I doing? You're driving reckless. Give me your driver's license or I'm going to knock you off this bike. Bear in mind, no badge, no uniform, no indication at all whatsoever that this guy is with law enforcement. He just says, you're fucking driving reckless. Give me your driver's license or I'm going to knock you off this bike. During the exchange, the deputy repeatedly asks this guy for his identification, threatens to dump the bike if it gets moved, and then takes the motorcycle driver's wallet from his left pocket All of this, of course, is on camera because, again, first rule of Fisk, police will continue to do dumb shit even when they are being recorded. So that is out of Washington. In Wisconsin, in Madison, the Department of Justice has issued a notice that police aired by withholding certain public documents. Turns out back in June, Madison police officer Kelly Hoft or Heft was arrested uh, after driving erratically, mowing down several yard signs. Turns out that she was drunk and had her five-year-old kid in the back seat with her. Uh, She wasn't charged until four days later. And then the report indicating that she was uh, arrested for DUI was delayed from being publicly released for several weeks after that. Completely different process from a normal criminal defendant. When you're arrested and charged within 24 hours and all of your public credentials get released to the media and Google and whoever the fuck else so they can see that you've been accused of a crime. Uh, The Madison Department, the Wisconsin Department of Justice has said that that was improper. Uh, Also out of Madison, Judicial policy prohibits the detention of minors in solitary confinement for more than seven days. Turns out an unnamed 16-year-old was held in solitary from July 1st until August 10th, so more than a month. So there's now a lawsuit pending in Wisconsin to address that. Uh, that's all of the domestic fuckery. We're already at an hour in. We do have one more story every now and then. We talk about other countries because they also have some fucked up shit as well. Well, it turns out there's a video from Shanghai, China, where a woman is arguing with a police officer over a parking ticket. She has a baby in her hands, can't be more than two years old. And you see the police officer just level this woman, punches her straight in the face. She goes down to the ground without any kind of, like, you see people fall to the ground and sometimes they, like, crumple or it's a slow fall. No, this woman gets laid flat on her back, hits her head on the concrete. The baby goes flying from her arms. Uh, So that is out of Shanghai, China. Uh, It's not really much consolation knowing that shit is fucked up over there as well. But, you know, I guess they're trying to take cues from the Trump administration and how we do policing in the United States. I don't know. Folks, that's going to cover it for the criminal justice news for this episode. Let's go ahead and transition into the Law 140 topic this week, suggested by Jennifer Coward in Florida on the scope of the First Amendment as it relates to incitement. (laughs) 
This week's Law 140 topic was suggested by one of our Law 140 lovers, Jennifer Cowart. Uh, we've mentioned before that on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash Fisk, uh, we have different levels. So you can become a patron with as little as a dollar. Uh, we give you some bonus episodes if you become a friend of the Fisk, as we call it. And then you can also be a Samson sponsor if you want some Samson pictures and uh, have you and your pets shouted out on the air. And then we have Law 140 lovers. So you get all the other prior things of everyone else, plus you get to pick one of the Law 140 topics that we cover on the air. And what Ms. Cowart has suggested is covering the First Amendment as it relates to incitement and hate speech and all the stuff that we've talked about in the past weeks since the Charlottesville rally. So as we cover the First Amendment, Second Rule of Fisk, you start at the source. The text of the First Amendment says, quote, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. So every now and then you'll hear lawyers talk about the five freedoms in the first. Uh, it's religion, speech, press, assembly, and petition. Just keep all that in mind. Well, in the speech context, it's worth remembering that for most of American history, the government was not terribly protective of your rights to speak. Uh, we had some things early on, the Sedition Act, for example, where dissent was criminalized. And one of the examples for how not protective of speech the government was uh, is this whole phrase about shouting fire in a crowded theater. Everyone has heard that phrase at some point or another. Anyone who wants to use censorship throws it out all the time. Well, that phrase comes from a case, Shank versus the United States. And Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. wrote, quote, the most stringent protection would not protect a man in falsely shouting fire in a theater and causing a panic. So that's the origin of that particular phrase. It's been shortened to shouting fire in a crowded theater. And if you've ever found yourself using that phrase, stop. Don't ever repeat it again because it's not the law. Uh, Shank was one of a trio of cases, and I'm going to give you the link to attorney Ken White, who runs the popad.com blog. He's actually done a good write-up on all three of these. Um, but Shank was a case that happened after World War I, and it related to a guy being criminally charged for encouraging dissent. Uh, essentially, this guy said that being a shank, the guy that was being charged, uh, said that being a conscript in the army was at least as bad as being a slave and that slavery was abolished by the 13th Amendment to the United States Constitution. Therefore, you can't have a draft. So he was actually charged under the Espionage Act and was convicted. And this case went all the way up to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court upheld the conviction saying that it was fine that you punish someone for saying you shouldn't have a draft, even though that's among the most benign criticisms you can have of the government. Well, there were two companion cases. You had Debs versus United States, which involved the socialist leader encouraging socialism. Uh, he was arrested. And then you had Frowork versus United States. I don't remember what the details of that specific case was about, but it's the Shank Trilogy. Uh, all three of these cases confirmed criminal prosecutions for people that were criticizing the government, which is why the First Amendment exists. So I'll give you the link from uh, Ken on that. Make sure you read through it for some of the details. But essentially, the case is trash. Oliver Wendell Holmes is trash. Even he backtracked on how broad this restriction on speech was later on in his career. So you should never, ever, ever use the phrase fire in a crowded theater again. So what is the law? Well, the, the standard still to this day 
is Brandenburg versus Ohio. So this is a 1960s case. Uh, it involved Clarence Brandenburg, who was a Ku Klux Klan leader in rural Ohio. He invited the media to watch him at a Klan rally. And during the rally, he made comments about Jews and black folks and threatening to uh, revengeance was the phrase that he used. He was going to get revengeance, whatever the fuck that is, against his enemies. Well, he was prosecuted under Ohio's anti-criminal syndicalism statute uh, and was convicted. That case was appealed and taken to the Supreme Court, and the court ruled that the conviction had to be thrown out. The court's opinion says, quote, the constitutional guarantees of free speech and free press do not permit a state to forbid or proscribe advocacy of the use of force or of law violation, except where such advocacy is directed to inciting or producing imminent lawless action and is likely to incite or produce such action. A statute which fails to draw this distinction impermissibly intrudes upon the freedoms guaranteed by the First and Fourteenth Amendments. It sweeps within its condemnation speech which our Constitution has immunized from governmental control. And that really is the standard for pretty much all speech. That's the base. That's the lawyers call it the leading case, the case that is most cited most often for a particular point of law. Brandenburg is the leading case on speech. And the reason why is that the, the method that a Supreme Court uses, or any court uses, to reach a particular conclusion matters at least as much as the conclusion itself. So we've talked in a prior podcast back on, I think it was June 12th, about the president and him blocking people on Twitter. We talked a bit about the levels of scrutiny that apply to speech. And speech is subject to strict scrutiny, anytime there's a law relating to that, where the government regulation is presumed to be invalid unless it is narrowly tailored to achieve a compelling governmental interest. So it has to be a compelling interest. It has to be narrowly tailored to do so. Now, there's lesser scrutiny for content-neutral time and place and manner restrictions. We're going to talk a little bit more about that in a second. But the methodology that the courts use to reach a conclusion about speech matters. So what you've seen under the Supreme Court, particularly under Justice Roberts, is a string of cases that have protected speech using the same framework from the Brandenburg case, essentially holding that speech is permissible not to be regulated unless it falls within a certain narrow, clearly defined categories. So what you've seen in some of these cases, for example, is you have United States versus Stevens, which was a case involving a law that banned crush videos. These were videos of people like stomping on cats and they would be, uh, cats would be crushed under women's heels and they would put the, uh, the videos online. Really gross shit. Of course, people passed a law to try and prohibit that and the Supreme Court said, no, you can't do that. That violates the First Amendment. Uh, Snyder versus Phelps. This was the case where a law was passed to prohibit picketing at funerals. Uh, this is the Westboro Baptist Church people. The Supreme Court ruled eight to one in that case that you couldn't have a law prohibiting those funeral protests. Uh, you had Reed versus the town of Gilbert, where the Supreme Court unanimously rejected the government's argument that a town could prohibit all political signs because they were prohibiting an entire category of speech, therefore it was content neutral. The Supreme Court there said no. McCullen v. Coakley was a case out of Massachusetts back in 2014 involving restrictions on protesting outside of abortion clinics. The court said in that case that you can do a certain limited restriction to give some space for people going in and out of the clinic, but 
but that the regulations passed in Massachusetts were too restrictive. Uh, Mattel v. Tam is a recent case, which involved the slants in their trademark application. And part of that decision, the court said, quote, speech that demeans on the basis of race, ethnicity, gender, religion, age, disability, or any other similar ground is hateful. But the proudest boast of our free speech jurisprudence is that we protect the freedom to express the thought that we hate. Uh, Even Citizens United, in that case, that one was a split decision, 5-4, but that was a strongly pro-speech ruling, essentially saying that you and your friends are allowed to run campaign ads for or against any particular politician you choose within 30 or 60 days of an election. The government can't regulate that. So there's very few things the government is permitted to prohibit. Uh, So what can the government do? Well, they can do content-neutral time, place, and manner restrictions. So we talked about those at length in our June 12th podcast. Uh, The title is Leaker, Liar, Crony, Sly. We talk about Donald Trump blocking people on Twitter. But essentially, there are four questions that you have to ask to determine whether something is a content-neutral time, place, or manner restriction. Uh, One is, does the regulation serve an important governmental interest? So this is a slightly lower standard than the compelling governmental interest. Two, is that governmental interest served by the regulation unrelated to the suppression of a particular message, meaning is it truly content neutral or is it just facially content neutral but in practice done as a way to try and suppress a particular message? Is the regulation narrowly tailored to serve the government's interests? So you still have to have narrow tailoring. And does it leave open ample alternative means for communicating the messages? So you can't close off all ways of trying to get out this particular message in order for it to be a time, place, manner restriction. Outside of those time, place, manner restrictions, there's not a lot the government can do. They can only prohibit certain types of speech. And and to give you an idea of those categories, I'll give you a quote from the United States v. Stevens case on those crush videos, where the court said, quote, From 1791 to the present, however, the First Amendment has permitted restrictions upon the content of speech in a few limited areas and has never included a freedom to disregard these traditional limitations. These historic and traditional categories, long familiar to the bar, including obscenity, defamation, fraud, incitement, and speech integral to criminal conduct, are well-defined and narrowly limited classes of speech, the prevention and punishment of which have never been thought to raise any constitutional problem. If it's not within those five categories, obscenity, something that's sex-related, and even then that line has been watered down a bit, Uh, defamation, something false that I've said about you, we've talked about slander and liable before, fraud, where I'm lying to you about something, incitement, where I'm saying something to incite imminent lawless action that's reasonably calculated to achieve that, and speech integral to criminal conduct, so me coordinating a criminal conspiracy. If it's not in those five categories, the government can't prohibit it. It can pass some certain incidental regulations as to time, place, and manner, but other than that, it can't do a whole lot. Now, there's a whole separate discussion about what are called social consequences. So there are no laws on social consequences. If you say something stupid and it goes viral and your life is ruined, well, fuck you. I mean, it's kind of what you get. You know, for example, all of these Nazis that were at the Charlottesville rally, uh, the Twitter handle at Yes, You're Racist, taking the pictures and actually identifying these people and citizens then contacted their employers to have them fired or their schools to have them uh, put on watch or whatever. There's nothing stopping that 
that. There's nothing prohibiting that. That's part of civil society. That's how it's supposed to work. But you can't go running to the government expecting the government to protect you from things that you don't like. That's just not how we exist in this country now under the First Amendment and under the case law that has been developed over the past 50-something years. So short story is you can say pretty much whatever you want in most cases on most things, and there's nothing at all the government can do to prosecute you for it. Um, But that doesn't mean that society can't intervene and drag you accordingly. So, folks, that's going to wrap up this particular Law 140 topic. I hope that uh, it was useful, a good explainer. Thank you to Jennifer Coward in Florida for suggesting it. And that's going to finish this particular podcast. Remember, I'm going to be on vacation from Thursday through Monday. So please feel free to still send me tweets of the latest criminal justice fuckery, but just know that I won't be able to actually look at them until I get back. Uh, Next Monday will be volume three of What the Fisk. And then the week after that, we will resume our regularly scheduled podcasting. Folks, thank you so much for listening. If you like what you hear, please leave us a five-star rating on iTunes or write a written review. We always love those. And on behalf of myself and Mike the Sound Guy, I hope all of you have a blessed week ahead.